this year's your big year. Kick like Clabo. I wouldn't say that race was determined by a fall or anything. I think right. I skied that. I approached that race and skied it exactly how I planned to execute it. We knew it was one in a million. But uh, skiing is what I do now. It was such a long I listen a little bit to the old Cedar Skier podcast. Cedar Skier podcast. I urge everyone to go out there and, and train and uh, reach your own goal. Anything can happen. Anything can happen. I race my heart out, and at the end of the day, I think that determines how I say that race was. And we keep on believing when you put your heart in it. What really excites me about skiing is that there's always something to do better. So insane, so insane. Who's to say that we can't make it? And set up a goal. Uh, it doesn't have to be a 24 hour <laughs> or, yeah. you know, endeavor. You know, yeah. When you put your Go for it and, and enjoy life. I think that's, that this is, this is pretty much it. Just that skiing is, is it's a lifestyle. I think after speaking to Tamir Vertanen, I've decided that he's just living the version of life I'm aspiring to do. He's just doing it on a completely different level. He's a true cedar skier, in other words. He likes skiing more than I do. He skis better than I do. He skis farther than I do. He talks about skiing in front of cameras and on podcasts better than I do to more people than I do. And, and as you can see, that last clip, it's like he he, he pines and waxes philosophical nostalgic things about skiing on just a different, more informed Finnish level than I do, too. Uh, you know, I don't know. Tamio Vertinen, ski enthusiast extraordinaire, former world record, 24-hour rec- world record holder, ski classics broadcaster, all things skiing journalist. He is our guest here on the Cedar Skier podcast, the, se- the, thir- the, f- the fifth fastest growing Nordic ski-specific podcast in all of Lake County and probably going to move up to number one after this show because it's one of the best that we have had. So watch out all you other Nordic ski specific podcasts in the area. Uh, But anyway, you might know him from that ski classics podcast, or maybe as a commentator for the ski classics, you might also know him as that former 24 hour world record holder. And on this show, we pick his brain about his recent attempt at taking back that record, how he prepared, how it went, how he got his skis ready, what, what he did, um, and we also talked about his life in the U.S., how he went from dropping skiing cold turkey after an NCAA stint and then went to work in Hollywood. That's right, all before he ever went over 400K in a day. We also chatted a little bit about the double pole technique, the state of the Ski Classics Union. Yes, Novi? Oh, Novi wants a hug. Not right now. Let me finish the intro to the show. Um, I didn't ask him if he had any special abilities to get me on a Ski Classics team, however. So all in all, technically an unsuccessful interview, at least for me personally. Um, You're just kidding about that, actually. This is, it was honestly one of my favorite guests, favorite shows. I really hope it's not the last time we have him on the show. We might need to make it a regular regular appearance. I don't know if he's willing to do that, but if he is, it'd be awesome. Uh, But anyway, not going to take any more of your time. We get right to the interview. A uh, lot of great stuff here. All you double pole dorks out there, uh, this one's for you. This one's for you. 
Tamo, it's great to have you on here. And, uh, you know, this is exciting. I, I've been a fan of your podcast, listening to the Ski Classics podcast. Uh, and, and I actually got an email. Hey, you got to ask uh, Tamo to bring it back because uh, it hasn't been on. The, and so <laughs> that's something you you have some fans, more than one out there from the U.S. But, um, yeah, it really, really fun to have you on, the, on our show. And I'm just kind of curious maybe to kick it off is um, could you kind of introduce yourself to – uh, the American following that we have, sort of uh, where you've been, where you are, where you're headed in terms of uh, skiing and your personal skiing, your career, where you live, all that stuff. Oh, that's a, it's that's a lot. A, that, that, yeah, that's a lot. That <laughs> could be a you know, long story, but I try to make a long story short. Uh, well, uh, in terms of, uh, well, before get, getting to, to my skiing career, so I lived in America. I lived in Los Angeles for a long time. I'm actually... Uh, Studied uh, in Reno, so I went to UNR, University of Reno, Nevada, uh, and then after that I moved to uh, Los Angeles. Uh, lived there, uh, worked in television business, movie business quite a lot, produced TV shows, hosted uh, quite a lot of them. Uh, but uh, skiing's always been part of my life. That was actually k- kind of the reason that I ended up in Reno. That I went to uh, the local ski or the university ski team, and I uh, got a scholarship. That allowed me to uh, study there because it's very expensive, as you as you guys know, <laughs> over there in your country, it's very expensive to study. Uh, but then, after a couple of years, I quit skiing and uh, stayed there. I got an academic scholarship, yeah, and I kind of left that life behind. So, but I was maybe like twenty four years old at that time. Uh, but I pretty much just quit cold turkey, you know, uh, after that one season. Didn't really do much in terms of physical activity all the way to, uh, I mean, I took a 10-year break. Wow. Uh, uh, yes, I gained a lot of weight. <clears throat> I was in a really bad shape. And um, actually, in the turn of a century, you know, the uh, I got a kind of an epiphany. I realized that I was in Rio de Janeiro. And I realized that I need to do something because I couldn't even, you know, walk up the stairs to that, you know, that statue, that Jesus statue, whatever sure. that's called. Yeah, called. Yeah, and yeah. I, reali- yeah, I realized that I need to do something. I mean, I'm, I was in a really bad shape at that time. Uh, knowing that I uh, had a long career in skiing, a long distance skiing, uh, and uh, I felt kind of bad, you know, I decided to do something about it. I didn't really think that I'm going to get back to uh, racing. I was just like thinking about my future. And I'm being at that time being at, at my th- early 30s. Uh, so I decided uh, that I need to do something. And then I slowly but surely got into uh, training. And after a couple of years, I realized that I, I could race again. And um, that's how I kind of kind of started but then to 2008 i had to move back to finland uh, after 18 years uh in america i ne- needed to move that's a long i'm not going to get into that but it's uh, yeah. a lot of things happened there but uh, then i moved back and i started producing my own tv show here which was a kind of a magazine a variety show but it was a sports themed uh, weekly show and uh, so i did that and kind of got into skiing myself and um Ever since, you know, I've been, I've been ski- skiing and training quite a lot. Uh, of, of course, producing TV shows uh, and other stuff too. But um, right now, I'm working for a, a company called Viaplay, which is a pay channel. I am their on-site host slash reporter, 
which means that I'm uh, at World Cup races, you know, Nordic skiing, uh, interviewing skiers and uh, doing reports and stuff like that. And uh, as the name implies, like hosting the, uh, you know, the stuff, but on location, I'm not in a studio, but on location. So I was at the World Championships and lots of the, uh, the World Cup races. And I've been working for uh, Ski Classics for a long time as well. You mentioned the podcasts, uh, but creating content and speaking of the podcast, most likely we'll, uh, we'll do more in the future. Uh, it's been a while since I've done one. Um, so that's kind of, I guess, kind of in a nutshell what I've done. I've done lots of things too. Besides that, you know, been in a mobile marketing business. I worked with Nokia, you know, when Nokia was big in Finland and things like that. The Hollywood business, you know, and all that kind of stuff. But uh, skiing is what I do now, and um, they're 24. That's something that I kind of dreamed about when I was younger, because there was this Finnish skier who actually had the record way back then, and I remember seeing him, uh, uh, seeing him here way back in the 80s. Like I was really young back then, but uh, I remember he that he tried to break the record over here somewhere, and I was uh, I was there watching it. And I kind of figured that that's kind of interesting. I would like to try that. But it was just an idea back then. But then when I got back, I moved back to, uh, to Finland after the, the, all those years in, in America. And I started producing my show. I realized that I have a platform. I have a show that I could do it for. And uh, which also allowed me to get sponsors and stuff. Because it's quite, it's, it's quite an ordeal to put that together, you know, when you do it for, you know, for Guinness. Right. When you have to, when you have to have all the, you know, the supervisors and the witnesses and lots of people, uh, and they're pretty strict when it comes to um, all the evidence. Uh, so that's that's you know when I, when I kind of decided that I'll I'll try again. Well, actually, I did, not again. I did, that was my first time that I really got into it, but I was right. kind of an I, I, idea. And uh, then two thousand eight or nine you know that's uh nine actually to be more precise that's when i tried it for the first time in Vogati, finland uh didn't break the record back then but then the 2010 i uh then broke got, the got record there. yes yeah. exactly and I, oh, yeah. go ahead. Uh, well you're you're getting into so many uh like <laughs> amazing things i actually want to backtrack just a little bit because i i did not realize i knew you had been in america i didn't really realize totally the how long you were here and i definitely did not know about kind of <laughs> excuse me sorry your um comeback story i guess so you 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 were born in finland though and like did did you grow up skiing and have like you know just like in in clubs and do, doing it for fun exercising a lot i'm assuming that's how you that's how you got good enough to get a scholarship right yeah, that's the usual story. I was pretty young yeah. when I got into it, you know, and, and that's the kind of the system we have here in Finland. Uh, we have ski clubs in every, uh, well, way back then we had, we still do, but it's not as it, it used to be. Uh, but yes, we had ski, uh, okay. uh, there was a ski club in my hometown, Lahti, where I still live. Sure. Uh, and, and I was part of that. Then I actually moved to Norway for a year or so because of my, my father got a job there. So, okay. and that was then... Uh, in junior in junior high like seventh eighth crater uh so which was really nice i mean of course i enjoyed it because you know that being a mecca holman colin and oslo you know yeah being a me mecca of uh, nordic skiing uh even way back then you know they were still you know way ahead of everybody else right uh 
Uh, but yeah, that that's kind of my story. I did a lot of skiing and uh, raced a lot. But I realized quite early on that I was really I had a knack knack uh, you know for uh, long distances. I was maybe at my twenties, early twenties, when I really uh, did like the the first really long distance races and did really well. Uh, and and I figured that's kind of my my calling. And then nineteen. 1990 uh that was the year when i moved to uh, to america but that winter uh i raced uh which, which was uh well the world loped which is kind of what ski classics is is now right. the long right. distance cup you know and and i finished if i remember correctly i finished maybe eighth or ninth uh in the overall kind of the wow. eighth, eighth best gear yeah. Uh, in the world at that time uh, and uh but then that's based on that i got the scholarship and uh, all that you know and then i moved to to america but and then after- i mean the ncaa must have been kind of like a totally different game <laughs> skiing that versus world lopper right i mean or did you take to it okay yeah i mean that was <laughs> that's the thing you know i was promised yeah. to uh you know when 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 i made the deal with the university i was kind of promised that i can go back and do certain races which I did, but it was really tough because of the kind of the system that you guys have that you have to qualify. You have yeah. to have the local race and you have to qualify. Right. But if you're much better than anyone else, you still needed to do that one race. You, you sure. still have that yeah. system that you have to go to a, this qualifying race and qualify yourself uh, to the nationals and so forth. So, so that year, I actually ended up going uh, to Europe or to Finland and Sweden twice within two weeks. And then I did the college races as well. So it was okay. really tough. I came, you know, I fl- uh, flew over to Finland, did Finlandia Hito, and then I flew back to uh, to California, did a couple races there, and then flew to Sweden uh, and did uh, Basel Lopez. So it was like really, yeah, yeah. really tough, uh, you know, that year. I so, mean, uh, did did you feel like, uh, you know, looking back at it now where you are coming full circle, uh, uh, how do you sort of break down or analyze that's that chapter of your life where you gave up skiing and really found yourself, you know, overweight and out of shape. How do you look back and go, how did I end up there? And also that's a, obviously a special part of your story, you know, like what, what does it mean to you now? I think that's, that's a really interesting anecdote to be honest. It's really crazy. Yeah, it is. I mean, but of course, um, it's not that easy to say what it really means to me now because I kind of look back on that uh, uh, with uh, fun memories too because that was completely different times, you know, in life for me. I got yeah. into, uh, you know, even way back when I left, I was already working for radio. I was a radio, kind of a radio DJ here. Uh, I had my own show and then I got into, uh, was al- already reporting, writing articles for uh, Finland and I uh, got into television work pretty quickly so that kind of the, the movie business slash TV television work was pretty close to my heart even uh, even way back then uh, in addition to skiing so that was kind of my the other choice so it was easy for me to kind of leave the skiing behind and then <clears throat> hop on to this other you know bandwagon you know that's uh, you know the Hollywood or the entertainment business let me put it this way and I enjoyed it too you know it was something that I really liked and I didn't when I kind of chose that path I didn't really think that I'd come back to skiing but as I said you know going back to that Rio Rio experience and I realized that I need to do something but I wasn't thinking at that time I wasn't really thinking that I will 
start racing, you know, yeah. ser- seriously. That wasn't really an option. I was, I just figured I need to, need to be back in shape just to, you know, yeah, to do Stay my healthy. work and yeah, yeah exactly yeah. and be kind of you know energized and do do my work well. So, but then, then that that just kind of happened, you know, that once you start training and you feel better and better and like, oh, maybe I could try a race just for fun, which was kind of an idea as well that I do Finlandia Ito once just to uh, uh, try try my wings there again and just. Uh, which I did, and they did quite all right. And then, like, oh, maybe a couple more races, and you know, that's kind of how it slowly but surely happened, you know. And then, ever since, you know, I've been <laughs> training and racing quite a lot. Yeah, so, yeah. I, I, de- I definitely want to ask you about the, those specifics in preparation leading up to the um, world record attempts you've done. Uh, first, really, really quick, actually, when you mentioned like you know being in Hollywood, Los Angeles. What have you worked on or done or produced or been a part of that someone might know that would be uh, like a famous show or movie, I guess? <laughs> well, I actually produce shows for Europe, mainly for Finland, okay. but some other okay. countries too. And I have my own own uh, TV show, which was called Hollywood Express, which was a movie, basically a movie slash entertainment show. Uh, and my basic job was to, to, of course, to host and produce that, but also to interview movie and rock stars. So for 15 years, I did that. I met every single one of them, pretty much. I mean, the old timers. I'm not, I, not the ones that are popular now, you know, but the, yeah. you know, the, you know, Pratt Pitt, you know, Keanu Reeves, you know, Michael Douglas, uh, all those big, big names, Al Pacino's and Johnny Depp's wow. and all, all those guys. And then the rock stars as well, Motley Cruz and, you know, all those, those uh, Elton John and all these, all these people uh, way back then. And that's what I did uh, and produced a show. It was a weekly show. And um, then after that, I actually got an offer to host another show, which was uh, produced and, and shot here in Finland, which meant that I had to uh, commute back and forth. Which yeah. Pretty, pretty tough because we wow. shot it here in, in, in Finland. And I lived there, so I always had to come back. You know, for um, for the uh, for, for the shooting, you're there filming of the show, uh, and then fly back to uh, to the states. So, uh, but yeah, that's that's what I did, you know, way back then. Uh, and uh, so, as I said, very different life. <laughs> yeah, what I do now. <laughs> wow, that's crazy. Um, I, and so yeah, you're back. You're kind of back in doing this uh, competitive training. You also do broadcasting. You're just involved in skiing a lot of different ways. I know, and you've done some pretty amazing. Long distance feats too, right? You had the thousand mile roller ski over across ten days across Finland. Um, you mentioned world world record at four hundred thirty k, four hundred thirty three k back in twenty ten. Um, what you, you also talked a little bit, I guess, how that kind of started for you, uh, which is sweet. But I'm also thinking, like, have you done some other big feats that maybe haven't gotten as much attention? You know that that uh, where you test things out, I guess. Oh, yeah, of, of course. You know, when I kind of decided that this is kind of the, the, the my cup of tea. So I I, I, I tried several things, you know, just to kind of test myself. And uh, you can't just suddenly jump on and, and, and do it, you know, for, uh, for fun. You need to be sure that you're able to and capable of doing yeah. something like that. So I tried all kinds of things, uh, 12-hour skiing and, you know, uh, long roller, roller ski. Uh, 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 just workouts and stuff like that, but none of them were really uh, 
publicized per se. I mean, it, I didn't really talk right, about right. them that much. But of course, these things that I've done now, they they always lots of media hoopla and exposure around them. Uh, and uh, but yeah, I, I'd say the twenty fours and uh, the the roller ski uh, endeavor that you just mentioned is probably those two other the longest ones that I've done. I've done the I've the twenty four. I I think this was my fourth time that i've uh, completed it i mean then i have some other failed attempts okay. as well uh but um what, what are the what are the distance you've you've made in those 24s that you've done other than the 433 like the ones you finished uh this one that i finished uh, a week ago or so that's my second that that's my best of course yeah that's your best my yeah. best right yeah uh, 443 then my record then i did 400 and Seven K. That was my first time, but it got so cold, you know. There, the first time I tried that, twenty oh nine. That attempt, okay. my my first time I was kind of rookie back then in terms of you know the twenty four. I didn't really know anything about it, uh, and it got really cold that night, like minus twenty four. Oh jeez. Uh, yeah, it was it's too cold. But yeah, that was maybe four hundred seven seven K, and uh, then my record, then this one, and then in Sweden, I actually didn't finish, I went a little bit over 20 hours, I was close to 400 K way back then, but then I had to uh, uh, retire as well, a couple, just only a few, a uh, couple hours before the uh, before the uh, the end of the uh, the event, and that was a time when the Swedish skier, Eric uh, Wikström actually, we skied together, me, him, and, and uh, the Russian guy, it was kind of a competition, uh, and uh, then he uh, actually broke my record. He beat me, and, and he broke my record back then. But for some reason, Guinness didn't accept it. We didn't have enough evidence, uh, or maybe video. I think the video was one of the reasons we didn't shoot the whole thing. So uh, that never got accepted. So I kind of remained the official world record holder all the way to 2018 when Hans Mampa then broke my, my okay. record. And I was there as well. I was in, in that. Uh, yeah, or well, that event as well. It was then Huntsman by myself, and then uh, Norwegian skier Daniel Strand, and uh, so again a kind of a competition set up. Set up we three skiing against uh, each other. But then I had to uh, was a bit sick that day, and I had to uh, retire again. And same, the same happened to uh, the Norwegian skier. But then Huntsman by was able to continue, and then he, uh, you know broke the record i mean it's uh which is a really tough one now it's uh the 472 that's uh yeah that's out there oh my gosh and it, on all those events i know this last one you had on a on a track like a 400 meter track right but but have all have they all been like that and if not do you think um it's better to do it on a track i was wondering if that setup was was partially because of the whole all the genesis book of world records like just to ease some of the uh, officialness to it or if that had more to do with you electing to like just use double pull technique and like if that's something that kind of goes into it too like um you know i i don't know if other people have skated i know the 24 hours that we've had in the states here a lot of people just solely skate and i'm kind of the one guess like oh man my ankles would die, but yeah. Like what, why do you do the track? Why do you do the double pull? And have you done others, other setups and, and what venue would you think is best for or optimal to try and set a world record? Well, that is a good, good question. I mean, uh, according to the Guinness uh, rules or regulations, you can do it. I mean, you have to have a measured track, of course, but the, uh, and it can't be just on downhill. 
all the way through, so of course, which is impossible. Right. Uh, they prefer track setup that it's it's some kind of a track. It doesn't necessarily have to be a track, but all the attempts that I've done and also been involved with, you know, are or have been have been on a, on a small track, a little bit different types of tracks, though not. Not all of them have been just completely flat. Like the one we had in Levy, where um, Hans broke the record, we had a bit of an uphill and then a long downhill. So basically half of the track was just a downhill, but then you had a climb as well. So um, I'm not, I, I can't really give you an answer in, in terms of the, uh, you know, the best possible scenario. Some people tend to think that uh, a track with some up up and downs and uphills and downhills could be better because you get a little bit of a rest. But then right. again, every time you have a downhill, you need to have an uphill, which means yeah. that you need to kind of climb up. I mean, and they those tiny hills become mountains at the end of the yeah. year. <laughs> right. So, yeah, so I, I really don't know. I mean, it's, and since I didn't really do, um, you know, the Ulas, the Levy, Levy one, uh, only did like maybe the first eight hours so i don't really have a complete picture of, of it i can't really say based on my experience if that was better or not and then the one that i had or when i broke my record that was also short 500 meter track but it was like uh it was like kind of like a loop and we had a couple really sharp uh, curves on both ends hmm. and i have a bit of a downhill and a, a tiny climb uh, but on hindsight, it probably wasn't the best. So when you, when maybe, you mentioned, yeah. I was going to say just clarification that the one that the, with the big hill that you said, was that on like then like a, a roller ski track or did they just like construct a huge hill on a, like a regular track and field track? No, that was, uh, that was in Levy, which is in a kind of on a downhill ski resort. Okay, that so was it's at, in the, at, in yeah, the and also the uh, also the Finnish Finnish area of the Ulas Levi uh, ski race, which okay. was the finale of uh, of 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 ski classics. Yeah, uh, that that year, and uh, it was just uh, by the um, there was actually a downhill slope that we kind of utilized just a tiny bit, so we kind of climbed up that and then came down right away. Did you double so, pull that though? Yes, we did. Yeah, you, okay, yes. okay. yeah. Okay. And then uh, getting back to uh, the second part of the question, which was the double polling. Yeah, yeah. Uh, for, uh, uh, again, for Guinness, it doesn't really matter. And I mean, it's just, they just mm -hmm. consider Nordic skiing. I mean, all the techniques are, you know, allowed. Right. Um, but the reason why we did it double poll, when I broke, when I broke the, uh, the record way back uh, to, uh, 2010, I actually used... All the techniques, not, not not classical, but I used skating, double polling, and even single kick a little bit. You know, the skating, the single kick, the, what they call the sheet on and street over here. Um, so I used that one as well. But then when we decided to uh, do that uh, attempt in Sweden, in Volodalen, in conjunction with the um, the Orefelsloppet, again, a ski classics uh, finale, uh, then we decided 
to do, go double polling because it was kind of the you know ski classics being a you know classic technique and all that so it kind of fit that theme you know i was so i guess that's where it kind of came about that let's do it you know just use double polling technique and then of course when I, when <laughs> then 2018 when hans manba kind of challenged me and said i want to do it again and 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 then he wanted to do it double polling as well. And he said, you know, that he, because he did a lot, he doesn't do skating at all. Or sure. He, yeah. He's not skiing. He's not skiing anymore. But um, so then we decided that we'll, we'll all kind of stick to that. And also double polling is the, uh, the most energy efficient technique, right. you know, when it comes, you mentioned skating, but it, you know, of course you go faster, but then again, metabolic um, cost. Yeah. Exactly, and you burn burn so much more calories, and your muscles get so sore and all that because you work with the, with your legs that you know with bigger muscles than you do in in double polling, uh, and also uh, the small track because you need to manipulate the tracks, meaning you need you need to have icy conditions, uh, you need to ice them up and make sure that they are really they stay hard. So it's right. easy easier to do that if you have a classic track just right. to. In, instead of you know the skating you can't really you can't ice that you know it's uh, or you have to have special skis you know uh, with like really sharp edges that you could yeah, use for skating and also uh, if it's a short track it's easy easy easier to do that if it's like a really long long like a five kilometer track you can't really do much about the uh, the track it's too right. too too long for anyone to do anything on so it's uh, and also if you're a short track, your service people are always around you. Yeah. If you have a longer track, I mean, it may not sound that much, but you know, when you're getting tired, uh, even 500 meters might be might be too much. You need when you feel that you need something, be it gels or energy or something, you need to have it uh, almost immediately. And then when you have a short lap, you can you can uh, uh, holler to your team and you know, say, "Hey, I need this and that." And then when you come right. back, they already have it. And you only right. spend a minute or minute and a half, and then then you're there. And uh, so that's this certain things that um, work in favor, uh, you know, for, for for a shorter track. But then, uh, of course, longer track could be nicer for for the skier, uh, him or herself. You know that you just out there. But then again, I don't really care. I mean, for me, it doesn't really matter if it's a long or short track i kind of get into this zone and tend to forget everything everything except the uh, you know the uh, the uh, the endeavor itself but everything else is like i don't really care if i go around small it doesn't really make make you know it doesn't yeah. really matter to me the task I mean, at hand is occupying yeah. your mind it, it, exactly yeah so it's how did you uh, let's talk about how you get ready for this on two levels training and logistics you know, what, what does your training look like? And then I also kind of do, yeah, I want to know like the, uh, well, first I'll have to ask you about the, like the, getting the track set up, you know, cause it's like, wow, that's, you know, you got to know some people, I guess, to get, get snow filled in the track, obviously get all the Guinness world record stuff set up your sponsors, but we'll get to that. So two parts of this question, preparing logistically, talk about your training and, and what does that look like on a weekly monthly annual basis modalities volume uh, you can get as as nerdy as you want for us yeah i mean i train about eight to nine hundred hours per year 
which is quite a lot yeah, considering that I'm I'm also working. So I'm not like a like a full time athlete in that sense, uh, but. I do quite a lot of, I mean, the basic training is kind of the same as for any long distance or let's say ski classic skier. Uh, of course, I'm much older, so I, I, I can't really, I'm not that fat, fast anymore. I don't do that much speed training. I do a little bit of that as well. Uh, but uh, the basic training is the, is the same, meaning quite a lot of endurance training. Uh, then, of course, intervals, quite a lot of intervals uh, from short ones to longer ones, short one being... Uh, if it's not a speed training, so then we talk about from three minutes to uh, to all the way to even 20-minute intervals. Speed training is then shorter, like 30 seconds fast, 30-second recovery or things like that. Uh, but then I do what's really special to uh, uh, or the kind of the uh, design design for the 24-hour or the, the really long ultra, what I call the ultra distances, like Nudenschersloppet, for example, which is the 220K ski race you need to do these really long uh sessions every once in a while and when i say really long for me it's uh ca it can be like from eight to 12 hours every once in a while uh of course you can do it do that too often it's really because it's very taxing it's very uh uh it takes uh, first of all it takes a lot of time to do that and then the recovery and, and all that but uh, i do those uh, every once in a while and i do quite a lot of uh, a bit shorter distances but still long meaning from anything uh, from four to uh, six hours you know, quite a lot of those uh, and uh, but then the rest is as uh, or as i said you know it's close to uh, uh, what any long distance skier or any top athlete would do meaning the intervals and you know a uh, little bit of weight training or the uh, uh not, i don't really lift weights that much but uh, strength training of course but uh you can do that uh, uh on roller skis as well if you'll have like a really steep you can have like a slow wheels and steep hills you can do the uh strength uh training like that as well uh uh, but I do a little bit of a, you know the you know the uh, gym training and lifting weights and stuff, but I don't really like it too much. So, so I guess that's and and I do run a little bit. Uh, maybe every once in a while I might hop on a bike and go cycling, but um, not too much. I know that some uh, skiers do that more often, but I spend a lot of hours on roller skis. So like this season. I think I'll by I'm still skiing. We still have a bit of snow left. Yeah, yeah. Here, here in Lahti, so uh, I sh would I think I'll have about maybe six thousand k by the end of the se season, or maybe a little more, and pretty much the same number uh, uh, on Triland as well, meaning that roller skiing. So I have about twelve thousand or so kilometers per year. Uh, on skis, meaning on on actual skis, and then on roller skis. How many so, days on snow do you end up with usually, and what's kind of like your all time record? Uh, haven't really counted the days, but uh, pretty much uh, six months. So yeah. I started. I started. I think my first training session on snow was at the end of October. That was in Levy up north in in Lapland. Okay. Uh, and then I'm still skiing. So usually my last one, last session on snow, 
somewhere in mid-May. So a couple more weeks, then I'm pretty much done with uh, skiing on snow. Uh, but then, of course, I, hop, I I just start roller skiing right away. I, I don't have a break, sure. really. So I just, uh, I mean, I mean, sometimes I do do it simultaneously with, you know, uh, when I'm still skiing. So I, yeah, I a little bit of the mud it, season. <laughs> yeah, exactly, because it's uh, yeah. it's kind of the uh, you know the little bit of an off season already. So it's not that the skiing isn't really that good anymore. Still yeah, is yeah. actually right now. We still have uh, maybe two more weeks. We have pretty okay conditions, but after that, when this stops grooming. Yeah. Uh, and this uh, snow uh, melts so quickly. There's no point doing like really hard sessions on snow, and uh, and I end up doing it on a really short stretch, maybe less than 100 meters yeah, yeah. of snow. I yeah. do the kind of the last <laughs> last session, so yeah. uh, I tend to go roller skiing uh, uh, around that time as well. So I might do the longer training on roller skis and then do a little bit of skiing just for fun of it, and I can say that hey, I ski today, and it's. Yeah, yeah. You know, Mid-May, and I'm still skiing. <laughs> do, uh, do you just pretty much double pull all of those uh, roller skiing and other sessions, or do you mix things up just for the heck of it, too? I do. I uh, actually like sk- skating quite a lot. I do maybe twice a week or so. Okay. Uh, uh, diagonal striding every once in a while. Uh, but not that much. I maybe did six or seven sessions this winter, although two of them are quite long, four hours. I like diagonal striding, uh, and uh, but I I really need to have like good conditions and just hard wax. I don't want to put any cholesterol on just to, like really easy, easy. Right. Uh, uh, and I don't really use. I mean, I have skin skin skis, but I don't really like like yeah. using. Um, they they're pretty good for uh, recreational skiers. Don't get me wrong, but uh whenever i go diagonal striding i just i like to do when it's like cold snow and easy to wax you have a perfect kick and yep. i just do like a ro- long easy session but most of the training yes of course is um, double polling uh but i also do skating uh in the summertime as well meaning meaning that i uh uh roller ski uh or, or do skating on roller skis as well so maybe once or twice a week although not really those sessions are not really that long they may be like two two and a half hours uh the most compared to you know double pulling that can be all the way to that 12 hours that i just mentioned yeah how long do you do those 12 hour sessions that like kind of a once a month and a half or or more often than that i can't imagine you do those too frequently but that sounds like a huge day no yeah you're right i mean you can do it um maybe once a month or as you yeah. said maybe every six weeks or something like that and you just leave in the morning and you have to have a perfect day you just kind of yeah. uh, look at the weather forecast and and make sure that the day's good you know not too windy it's uh, not rainy uh the good thing about roller skates is that you can control it much better than than skiing because you just if if the day's okay there's a rain or uh, it's not too windy you can go out there and and uh just and you always have the same roller skis. You can you can change the skis. You can have slower and faster right. wheels, but at least you know what you have. Uh, but when you're skiing, you know the conditions change so quickly, uh, particularly in this in, in springtime. It's really fast in the morning, but really slow in the afternoon. But when you're roller skiing, it it kind of stays the same. It's a which is good, and then it's easier to do those long sessions because you can plan them ahead much easier. 
because it's it's always the kind of the same pace and right you know the same course the same road that you use and so forth so well let's uh let's hop off here and we'll come back and we'll chat a little bit about the uh the other part aspect of preparing for this 24-hour thing the logistics side as well so it's interesting chatting with you because like I feel like so many of our training approaches are really similar and, and you know kind of squeezing out the last last part of the snow here in Leadville I can I have skied till May 23rd but like that last month they stopped grooming probably early April if we're lucky but you, if you can double pole there's a lot of mining roads and things like that out there that the crust is really good, you know, and it wouldn't be skatable, but <laughs> it's, mm. uh, you, you got to get away with double pulling up long climbs and things like that. So, uh, I, I tend to do a little more biking and running probably just cause it's so beautiful here. I just love, uh, love mixing it up, but, uh, yeah, it's, uh, that's pretty interesting. And I, I was curious, actually, I watched this old Amazon prime. I think it was from the eighties of a guy who roller skied from, Man, I think it was like the northernmost tip of Canada to the Mexican border. And uh, I mean, it was a long time ago. So he's on like pneumatic tires on gravel roads, no helmet, and then really tiny old school roller skis. I was like, I wonder if, I wonder if you've ever entertained any ideas of like coming back to the US and going roller skiing across, you know, from like LA to Virginia Beach or something like that. <laughs> do you have any do you have any aspirations to do something kind of nuts, crazy like that? Uh, funny you should say that because I actually do have that. I have a project that I oh really uh, I am working on, which is across uh, you know the uh, roller skiing across the country, starting from LA all the way to maybe New York or you know to, to the East Coast. So yes, that is a project, and I talked to uh, uh, you probably know Anders Auckland, you know the yeah. legend, the long distance. So he's willing to to join me, and maybe we get a Swedish guy as well, and. Um, uh, kind of the tentative project name is the Nordic Warriors that we do maybe three of us we go through uh you know the um, through the country uh, and uh, it's kind of like a it could be a, a television series or maybe a documentary but maybe maybe even television sh- series and and I'm actually uh, coming over to uh and in June, I'm coming over to uh, to the states. I'm uh, gonna have some meetings over there in Los Angeles. Meet with some of my old, you know, um, contacts of mine, and and uh, then talk to them about it. And but of course, we need to have it's it's not it's much more complicated than just roller skiing across Finland or Sweden or even Norway, uh, for yeah. obvious reasons. I mean, it's a huge country. Uh, the roads and setting it up and uh, the money wise, and we also need to have we need to have a channel, meaning uh, an outlet, uh, be it Netflix or yeah, the European European networks. Uh, we just need to have that exposure as well. But yeah, that is a project that I'm working on, and wow. not this summer, but maybe maybe even next summer. So and that, I think that could be kind of interesting. I think uh, the yeah. American audience, you know, the, the American audiences, you know, would be something. I know there's a bike race that goes from uh, right, right. W- from the West Coast to each, each but everybody, everybody, but people, that that's something you can do. I mean, that's quite doable that you oh, yeah. up on a bike and you just, you know, uh, cycle across the country, but n- no one's ever done it. You mentioned, I never heard of this guy, by the way. Yeah, but, yeah, look it up. Yeah. It's A to B. I think it's the title is A to B roller ski. I think it's some it's something really basic like that. This this guy it was in the eighties now, and I, I think he, honestly his journey seems pretty insane because yeah, again in Canada like there's these just nuts gravel, 
you know, you're so exposed out in the tundra and, and just his equipment and gear. He had a friend driving his little like VW van for a while. And it just, it was like the quintessential, this is what I want to do. Get my van and roller ski across the country. Like it just looked so sweet. So yeah, I think it's called a to B roller skis. I could, I'll shoot you an email if I, if I, if you don't find the link, um, uh, yeah, it's, it's cool. It's a cool flick. Maybe you'll have to look at it. And the, and the other thing that's interesting is he did that when he was, I want to say like mid twenties or, you know, a young athlete training. And then he went back when he was wealthier and older at like in his fifties, sixties and like redid it kind of, he didn't do the whole thing. He'd like, but he did certain portions of it. So the, the, the video ends, it's really kind of heartwarming of him, like strapping into the same roller skis fancier poles a nicer jacket still no helmet and just sending it down this gravel hill to start it out i'm like oh my gosh i just yeah i thought it was pretty sweet but that is so that's so interesting that you're thinking that i did not i had no idea i just threw that out here so yeah it's uh it's that uh, that is definitely a project that i've been working on so let's see if that materializes but yeah okay uh, yeah we'll see wow wow, very cool well you might have to come out here to leadville and practice going over the mountain passes you know i tried double pulling up and over independence pass and uh i made it like 20 of the 22 miles and then i had to do throw in a few classic strides at the top i got it was amazing how the altitude really finally kind of got to me and it it pitches up like 10 percent. i was like i just can't (laughs) but anyway okay back back to the world record stuff talk about the logistics as far as like i know some of my listeners are really into like you know, laying out the ski prep, you know, and making sure you have the right team and what everyone's jobs are and food. Like, how did you plan all that? And how did you carry it all out going for this when you when you broke your personal record, didn't quite get the world record? Um, yeah, I mean, you're right about that. I mean, it takes it really takes uh, uh, quite a lot of work to put it together. Uh, of course, I've done it so many times that I kind of know the drill. Uh, but if you want to do it officially, meaning that you really want to break a Guinness World, I mean, you can. There's certain people that do this for fun. Uh, they don't really uh, uh, apply. First of all, you need to apply for it. You know, you need to be accepted by Guinness. Uh, you can't really go and do it and then send in the uh, the evidence. You need to be. Uh, uh, you need to, first of all, no matter what type of uh, Guinness record you're trying to break, you always need to. Uh, uh, sign in and apply for it and then they accept it or they don't accept it of course this is a category that exists so it's always easier when when there's an old record then you just break you know but there's a lot of records that you know don't even exist and then the kids need to kind of evaluate them and say that uh if it's even doable and uh but of course 24 hour skiing uh nordic skiing the greatest distance in 24 hour nordic skiing that category uh does exist so uh that's not a problem. You can always get accepted. But then, once that has happened, then you uh, they get send you the uh, kind of this uh, booklet or you know the uh, you know the, the the Guinness rules uh, uh, applying to your particular uh, record breaking attempt, and um, then you just kind of have to uh, follow those guidelines. And for a twenty-four hour, I'm not going to go through in uh, into each one of the <laughs> one of the uh, you know the uh, the the, the the rules but the basic guidelines or the uh, requirements uh, are as follows you need to have two witnesses uh, present uh, at all times and uh, but they can work uh, in, in shifts longer than four hours so you have to have quite many witnesses yeah. uh, then you have to have a, a timekeeper or keepers 
uh, and also the lap counters, they're kind of the same, you know, someone who's responsible for the time slash counting the, uh, you know, the laps. And those laps need to be manually measured, meaning that you no know, GPS, I mean, you can use GPS, uh, but that's not accepted by, by Guinness. For example, my GPS showed 10 more, uh, my final result was 443, but my GPS actually showed uh, 452. So uh, there's a huge difference. So GPS wow. uh, is not acceptable. You can use it for yourself as a kind of a, you know. So a, did you have to take guidance. a wheel out and like actually wheel yes. The, yes. the inside track the whole way around? Yes, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. You have to do that. And uh, what else in terms of uh, uh, then... I'm just trying to remember what else do you well, like the, I, I, I get, I, oh, the videotaping. That's one. You need to videotape the whole thing. It doesn't have okay. to be live, but every single Guinness uh, record-breaking attempt uh, needs to be videotaped or you, you have to have video and uh, f photo evidence of your attempt. But that's basically it. You know, the kind of the, the main requirements that the witnesses unless you ask Guinness to come over, but then you have to pay for them to come over, uh, like Guinness reps to come over. Uh, you don't have to have, you can have, you have, have, you can have your own, but they need to be people that have a certain status in society and they can, they need to be trustworthy and so forth. Uh, so you have those, then the timekeepers, uh, uh, and, um, uh, the videotaping, uh, so that those are kind of the, uh, the main uh, requirements. Then, of course, for yourself, you need a, a waxing team, a couple guys to wax your skis because I change skis every every hour, pretty much. Uh, then you need to have your own service team, meaning people who uh, feed you and give you drinks and stuff. Uh, those people, and they also need to work for 24 hours. You need several of those. Uh, then you need just hands. If you need to do something uh, to the track, you need to have lots of people that can do that. You're not going to crew it in the middle. You, you can't do that. So, but uh, before you get started, you need to have or someone, in my case, it's always been a city or someone else that has groomed the track using that like, you know, grooming machine. Uh, but after that, of course, you, you can't touch it because if you groom it in the middle of it, it's, it's too soft. So uh, you just do it and you let it stay there and then you uh, ice it or, or even in warm conditions, you can uh, throw salt in it. You know, you can, you can manipulate the track as much as you want. Uh, Guinness doesn't really care that. Uh, and, so did uh, you have people who were doing that that were like just family friends or like expert professionals with snow, you know, to kind of make sure the snow was the track was as fast as possible? Like who was doing that for you? Well, we just have had some uh, uh, volunteer volunteers, you know, just okay. people from the area. Uh, I've been kind of lucky because of uh, uh, my television work and the media exposure that I get. That I always get sponsors and people that are always uh, really inter in interested. And 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 I was uh, supposed to do this at the Olympic Stadium in in uh, in Helsinki uh, and uh, work together with the uh, the Finnish Ski Association. But unfortunately, those dates that I reserved for me didn't work out. The weather was too bad, so I had to postpone it. And then uh, after a while, we didn't really have any other any additional days. 
what dates there. So uh, I need to move the uh, attempt from Helsinki to another location. And, and that's when the Vajakoski Jyväskylä came about. And uh, which was also kind of tough because the, these guys over there, they just had to put it together in a, in a couple of weeks, not really knowing what to do. <laughs> so uh, if, if we are going to do it again, it will be much easier this time around because uh, we know what or they know what to do. Of course, I explained them, you know, I went through the whole, uh, you know, drill, but still, if you haven't really done anything like that, if you haven't put together a 24 hour world record breaking attempt of the event like that you don't really know what's what's needed and what's not and so, i mean how much does it kind of cost do you know that like how much does it cost to get all the snow brought in and, and groomed nicely like you're getting help because your media exposure and your sponsors but what is that do you are, are you are, yeah do you know what that is it seems it seems kind of crazy over in america sometimes i'm like i joke in leadville high i couldn't even get a race on around turquoise lake going if i wanted to because i'd have to talk to this department the road department and the forest service and uh you know the snowmobile grooming and get all these rides oh it's just a headache it's never gonna work and it never does and and yet here you're setting up world record attempts in stadiums you know i i, I just think it's in a crazy contrast probably partially culturally you know you guys value it but yeah how much how much like actual financial oomph do you have to put behind this Honestly, as you said, I don't really know. But the good thing is okay. that, as I mentioned earlier, I always got the uh, uh, sponsors or people who are uh, willing to do this. And I haven't, haven't really paid anything for my attempts. But of course, yeah. I, what I can offer in, in, uh, in return is a lot of media exposure and, and uh, things right. like that. So and like uh in helsinki we had the stadium and the city of helsinki behind it and of course in vajakoski same thing the city of yubaskula slash vajakoski uh you know they provided the uh the, the location to the track and the grooming and all that and then of course this uh uh, uh person that i contacted that his name is actually Juha Tuikkanen. So he was the one who organized everything and got the people together. So I'm always kind of relying on those type of people to take care of the kind of the, uh, just the running the, running the sure. thing and, and, and uh, contacting people and, and getting people or getting the volunteers to work for the, uh, the event. Although since we have, were really on a tight schedule, we didn't get enough support skiers. And that was that was one of the problems that I couldn't really break the record was that I had to ski alone for the first eight hours or so. And the conditions uh, went really the best possible because it got so warm during the daytime. So the first eight hours were really tough for me. But after that, it got much better, you know, when the sun went down and uh, more support skiers started to show up and, and help me out. So then, then it was much easier. But uh, maybe wait, next wait. time. Yeah, wait, uh, yeah, no, I, I've, I want to ask you about that. You've got something planned in the future with, with the weather changing and stuff. Kind of going back to the the ski prep side. Do you break? Do you have a fleet? Like, how many skis do you have? How many different grinds do you have? You mentioned whack, rewaxing them every hour or switching out every hour. But did you even like in advance of that? Maybe a week before? Are you putting on? you know, the warmest, best waxes you've got for, um, you know, your largest grooved grind skis and all that stuff. And then once the event starts, you're, you're rolling them out, scraping them off and then kind of redoing it. Or 
how does that actually work? So you have the right ski given the right conditions. And actually maybe just on top of that, uh, do you, do you use like HF waxes? Is that still legal for Genesis world records? I'm, I'm not really sure if, uh, the world cup rules apply or how that works. <laughs> no, you can still use them. Of course. I mean, yeah. it, that, that'll be, that'll be actually next year when those are banned. Okay. Uh, but yes, uh, well, I had eight, nine pairs of skis, I think, but I didn't, I okay. didn't use all of them actually. Uh, but as I mentioned, I have a service team, you know, I have waxers there and they wax my skis. So I don't need to. Yeah, need to have like a you know, bunch of skis that I already like pre-waxed uh, just to have. But yes, I have a different type of grindings a little bit. But of course, uh, the best possible scenario would be to have the same conditions and you just have a, yeah. maybe two or three pairs that are really good and you just keep, you know, uh, using those and shifting and alternating between those uh, uh, and uh, every... Because if the, the the conditions are hard and the tracks are icy, you have to you know get new skis or new waxes basically. Uh, after about every sixty minutes or so, sixty maybe seventy minutes or so, uh, because they're so much faster when you have like really fresh skis, so to speak, that are just waxed uh, and and because uh, icy conditions they are really they can wear you that the wax out pretty quickly. So that's one thing, but um, of course, in spring conditions, you know, the, the since the weather changes quite a lot, uh, you have to have a little bit of a, a different type of skis. You have to have the warm, you know, the warm snow, the warm condition skis as well, which I did. Uh, but of course, the uh, uh, an ideal situation would be in, to have maybe just the three or four pair of skis and you use those and that's it. Sure. And, and yeah. And you don't really, if it's icy conditions, you just have one type of cry, uh, grinding and that's it. You don't really need to uh, use other type of skis uh, because more skis you have, the, the, the more uh, complicated it gets because then you have to kind of, I mean, it's easier for you if you just have certain type of skis and you stick to that and that's it. You don't, you need, you know that you don't really need any other skis, you know. Right. Yeah. Kinda, yeah. It's uh, otherwise it's like uh, one more thing you got to do. <laughs> it, it, exactly. And if, <laughs> if if the if the weather changes, then uh, you pretty much know that you're not gonna break the record. It needs to be very stable all the way through. Which was, I mean, we had pretty good conditions, but it got a little bit, a little too warm during the daytime because of the sun and the yeah. spring conditions. Uh, other than that, it, you know, the the snow state, uh, you know kind of the same which which you need for for a record-breaking attempt i mean if it if it changes too much i mean it's as you know i mean then then you won't be able to keep keep the same tempo on the same uh, speed you know if it gets slow and fast and and it needs to be very stable all the way through you mentioned like pretty intense training and structured intervals and all of that stuff and I mean, are you doing that really just with the sole focus of this record attempt throughout the summer, fall, winter? It's like this going to be that one day or, or do you kind of approach it like, hey, I want to hop in a few of these uh, world loppets when I can, you know, around work. And then, you know, the world record attempt or, or a 24 hour thing is is kind of always on the radar. And if the weather looks good, you know, set it up. I, I mean, how, how do you kind of approach your season? That is a good question as well. But uh I do kind of both. I mean, of course, the 24 
uh, is kind of the main goal of the season or was my main goal and most likely will be um, uh, the main goal uh, for the next season as well. But I always want to do more than uh, just that. I have like couple, like uh, the, maybe the main goal and then two other goals. And maybe for next season, it could be then 24, then the Nudenschels Lopet that's coming back, which is the longest long uh, distance ski race in the world. That is the... Uh, uh, 220 kilometer race in Sweden. So that's always, uh, I like that very much. You know, that's uh, always uh, one of my uh, primary goals. And then maybe a couple uh, shorter distances, Finland, being a local race, uh, maybe Tartuhito. I did really well uh, at Tartuhito, which is the, the longer, longest and, and uh, the biggest and the best race in Estonia. You know, it's a really, it's yeah. a world lopet, it's a world lopet race. Uh, I was tenth there uh, this year, which was really good, you know, at, at my age. So yeah, I have a couple, maybe the you, you called uh, uh, said world lopet. Then don't have to be world lopet races uh, per, uh, per se, but uh, ski classics, world lopet, or one of the uh, you know the the, the prestigious uh, long distance races. You know, I always want to do some of those. And then maybe the one really long one, which is usually the Nordenschers Lopet, and then my 24. The idea is that I I could do 24 uh, uh, in the early season, uh, meaning December, January, then recover from that, maybe do Finlandia, Tartu, those races at the end of February, and then at the end of the season, Nordenschers Lopet, and maybe one more race. Okay. So that's kind of how it's probably shaping up to be at this stage. So. I thought I thought I read in the story, maybe I was looking at it wrong, but I thought it said uh, that you were like, oh, this is going to be the last one. So did you change your mind like you're going to try and go for it again? Yeah, I think so. I mean, of <laughs> course, right after that, when you're really tired and people <laughs> ask you that, you, you tend to say that, yeah, this is I'm it. done. But yeah. yeah, I'm done. You know, no more. <laughs> I've done it so many times. But, you know, when I started to evaluate it and and I uh, kind of realized what went wrong, I, I figured that I maybe should do it one more time. Uh, knowing what to do uh, because it's been a while since I've done the whole, the full, I, I told you about those failed attempts, but it's been a long time since I've done really a, uh, the, the, the full 24 hour, meaning that I learned a lot from this one again uh, and knowing my shape now, knowing what to do. And uh, still I got quite, quite close. I mean, still there's a, about yeah. 30 kilometers, but still, uh, considering all the uh, kind of the uh, the hurdles that I had before I uh, be before I even started, you know, changing the location and all that, and being like really a uh, uh, long and hot season behind me, just working for you know the Via Play and traveling around the you know the Europe and all that, I was kind of tired as well. I mean, not not physically that much, but mentally and all that, and still was able to uh, pull that pull that off. So. Um, so yeah, I'm like feeling that I should try one more time. I know that the uh, you know that record is really tough. I mean, it's really tough. I have a chance to break it, but everything needs to uh, uh, work out really well. But I know for sure that I can improve my record. You know, I I uh, if the the conditions had been much better, I would have gone at least close to uh, 460. But still, there's a, like a 10 or 15k uh, to the record. But then I'm getting really close. So uh, do you think that 10 or 15 K you have to close is, is really just almost a weather ski speed dependent thing? Like, like you've, you, you're as fit as you can be. Maybe like you said, if you're not 
working off the end of a season and mentally fatigued, you know, that could be different, but do you feel like it's gotta be a little bit of a, a luck aspect too, or do you feel like some of the takeaways you've got are either fueling related or pacing related, you know, to, to try and reach that barrier? Uh, in terms of breaking the record, yes, I need all that. And all need also need like a, a bit of Perfect. good luck. Yeah, yeah. A bit of good luck as well. But I, I know for sure that I, I can improve, uh, quite a lot i can at least break the 450 quite not quite easily it's never easy when you do that yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah but i just you know by, uh just by having a better um better conditions and support skiers and as you mentioned just uh kind of the um uh to plan plan it a bit more carefully i i could uh, i could easily improve my my record right now uh, but to break the actual world record, that is a tough one. So it it is, it's possible, but everything needs to be. I mean, as I said, I mean, I need luck, and everything needs to be, uh, uh, needs to work out really well. And I also have to have a good day. Right. Yeah. Uh, what What do you think the limit is of this? I mean, you know, like Kipchoge has broken the two hour threshold. It seems like you guys, you're you're kind of tantalizingly close on paper, at least to five hundred. Um, have you thought about like if the best athlete had the best day in the entire world, what do you think uh, humans could do? Yeah, they could go over 500 and particularly skating using skating technique, uh, and different types of type of track. So I think, uh, double polling that 480 that I was aiming at 472 is the, the record 480 was it something that I kind of announced them will, uh, is my uh, goal. That's pretty yeah. tough, but of course, one day someone will break. Brickets always, uh, 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 they, they, they always get uh, They're meant broken. to be broken. Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. They, 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 they made that way. You know, it's, yeah. no one can keep a record forever. Uh, and, uh, but as you said, 500 K is, uh, it's kind of the, uh, it's a frontier that no one's, we ain't even close to yet, but one day someone will for sure. Yeah. When oh. that day comes, I don't know. <laughs> I don't think it'll be me though. It's uh, <laughs> just to break that four seventy two will be enough. <laughs> um. Hey, I, I I appreciate all this time you've given me. We kind of got through these the record stuff. I I do have some ski classics questions uh, for you specifically. Do you got time to answer them? Uh, how how sure. much time do you how much time do you have? Uh, I, I want to respect your bit, time. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Sure. Yeah. yeah. Well, um, and, and you know, this is interesting, you broadcasting world cup and ski classics, you've really gotten, I guess, a, you know, right up close view of both, both aspects, both arenas, right. At the top of the world. And this year we saw Slind, Ast Astrid Slind, like do incredible in, in both aspects. And I was wondering if you had any opinions on that and sort of maybe the crossover between world cup and ski classics. Cause I mean, I'm, I'm relatively new to cross country skiing and following it, but, but the general idea that I sort of grasp early on is seemed like 10 years ago, five years ago, ski classics is where guys like Auckland could go and in the twilight of their career and still compete very, very well. Now you've got younger athletes going right to ski classics, double polling, double pole focused early on. The training looks way different. And you know, some people are kind of like, Hey, world cup is real skiing. Ski classics is ski classics is its own thing. It's a double pole fest. If they like it, that's fine. But now you kind of see like, yeah, Slynn sort of showing, 
hey, you can be really good at both. And uh, yeah, I was just kind of wondering what your opinions were on that. If, uh, you know, maybe World Cup skiers need to check themselves at the door and go, mm-hmm. hey, you know, double polling. Maybe we could even benefit from some of that, focusing more on that specific sub technique or just, wow, the caliber of athletes over there is uh, is getting pretty high. But yeah, c- comment a little bit. What are your thoughts on that? Again, that's uh, that's a good question, and uh, we we could talk about that for 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 days. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, it's um, first of all, I mean, uh, as as you just mentioned, the long distance skiing itself has changed over the years. Of course, Ski Classics is kind of the spearhead. You know that that brand has definitely uh, uh, given a new platform for skiers to shine. And uh, you also talked about, I mentioned the training and the specific and specialized training that these guys need to uh, undertake. Uh, That's also uh, something that has uh, probably, I wouldn't really say changed that much, but uh, it's um, somewhat different from the World Cup skiers. Of course, uh, kind of the, the principles are the same of course and it's endurance uh, and uh we talked about the um oh, it, when you asked me about my training uh, i told you about the intervals and stuff and that's what a, every skier does be, be the world cup skier or or uh, uh long distance skier uh, but the uh, the good thing about long distance skiing is that uh it has really changed i mean ski classic is still relatively new in terms of the brand awareness and the you know the value and all that it's uh and it has grown every single year it grows uh and uh it has become a serious business and serious uh um uh, uh, uh sports as well meaning that the competition or the level of the competition is really high and we can see that whenever uh world cup skiers kind of visit ski classics uh they don't necessarily win races they can do well but of course they don't win. Uh, and then Astrid, which is talked about uh, is a good example of, of a, a great a crossover artist, so to speak, meaning uh, that she's at, at that age being 35 is kind of considered an, an a, a old timer, veteran skier, you know, the older skier. Uh, but since she has trained for long distance skiing for so long, and build up her base and doing those really tough trainings and uh, with her team uh, she has trained together with guys quite a lot and so forth uh, and that has really kind of built her uh, endurance and stamina and all that uh, that she's been able to do really well uh, shorter distances as well which is probably kind of some, uh, some kind of an eye-opener to a lot of the uh, uh, what I call the standard distance skiing, meaning World Cup skiers, uh, that you can actually come from that world as well and do well because you train so much more, and if you if your body uh, is able to take it, then you will do well, uh, and you can see that in and she's not the only one. Even um, Ida Dahl did quite well, and she also. Uh, participated um, in the tour de ski but I had to go back home because she got sick uh, some of the guys do really well in early season races uh, if you look at the uh, like Max Novak and those guys 
they performed really well on shorter distances as well. Anders Nigor has done quite well, particularly if the courses are uh, a bit easier, like um, when you can utilize double polling quite a lot, which they do. They do quite well uh, in those races as, as well. And um, so that's one thing. And uh, uh, then, of course, Ski Classics has also changed uh, in that perspective that younger skiers are stepping in, which wasn't really the case in the past. As you mentioned, the right. skiers in the in their twilight years are kind of stepping into the arena and, and uh, used long-distance skiing as kind of the you know, they, they, uh, farewell to, <laughs> right, you know, right. to the skiing careers, but that's not the case anymore. I mean, when you look around, I mean, this, we've been talking about this, uh, rise of the youth or the, the revolution, the youth revolution for, uh, quite some years now. And, uh, it's been happening quite a lot. I mean, every year we get more and more And this year was a good, uh, example of, of, uh, of so many young skiers stepping into the, uh, into the arena, uh, Amundrige and those guys. I mean, six, I think they're like the six best skiers in the youth category were also like top 10 skiers or close by uh, and, and, and overall as well. And and some of them uh, were podium skiers as well, like Amundrige and, and, and uh, uh, Max Novak used to be, but now he's over 26, so he's not uh, eligible, you know, for that anymore so um so it's definitely the whole scene is changing quite rapidly that we're getting uh, more and more young skiers and also the amazing sensational uh uh alvar mulbach was 16 years old um, and now he's 17 and he did so well i mean everybody was you know was amazed by his uh capacity and 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 ability and then again, on the other end, you have Anders Auckland, who just finished his career right. uh, uh, being a 50-year-old master skier. And he also did quite well. I mean, it was in, I think in most of the race, he was in the top 30, some of them even top 20. And I think like, like Diego Nela, he was only 22 seconds behind the winner, which also not the, the, the other end of the spectrum. You have the 16-year-old and then you have this 50-year-old guy and they both do well. And all the sk skiers in between, so yeah. What do you? Yeah, I mean, what do you yeah. think of the of Mirbach? You know, there's been some discussion like, oh, he shouldn't have done that. Some people are like, well, hey, hey, maybe there's a financial incentive there or whatever. But what do you think of him skiing in the ski classics? Is that gonna hurt his his uh, chances? You know, if he does want to go to the World Cup, I think he I think he is doing that right. Eventually, here he's gonna break onto the World Cup scene too. I mean. Um, just because of his age, what what were your opinions kind of around his his abilities and his decision to do ski classics? That is a good question. I don't. I talked to him once when I did my podcast uh, last year, uh, but I don't really know for sure what his uh, plan was for this or why he uh, chose to do this. Yeah, uh, but I think he kind of wanted to have or do ski classics just to kind of mentally toughen himself up a bit uh, mm. and get a really, really good tough races and kind of build that what I call the foundation, meaning that build have something that that he can build upon. And uh, but because he's so talented, 
uh, of course, he's also uh, uh, considering uh, standards distance distances as well, meaning World Cup and maybe World Championships and all that. So, um, I think it was a good choice. I mean, I I, I understand that lots of people criticize that as well. That it can be too tough for someone at his age to do these long distances. That he can kind of burn himself out. Um, I don't think so. I think it was really good for him uh, and and. Uh, uh, it, it's more up to the uh, the training and the things that he'll, he'll do in the future. It's he has proven that he's a he's a capable skier. He's a, a really a talented skier, but the question is how to improve from that and what to do next and how to do it. Meaning, uh, training wise, uh, that that plays a bigger uh, role in his future than the, the this ski classic season that he just left behind uh, and uh, because he can easily be being this good he can easily fall into a trap and start training way too much he's still 17 years old i mean you have to yeah. remember that you're still you're still a teenager you're still growing uh, and 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 your body is still uh, adapting to uh, kind of the the early adulthood, you know, it's uh, right. he needs to take those things into consideration and be really careful uh, in terms of his training and, and all that. But uh, if everything works out well in his case, I think he'll be uh, he'll be the future star. Could yeah. be both. Could, could be both in in the ski classics and uh, at World Cup as well. But uh, but that remains to be seen. That would be incredible. I tend to to decide a little more with what you're saying too. And just also, you know, it seems like everyone's, everyone is an individual. So it's, it's, I think risky to pigeonhole either you're too old or you're too young, you know, and, and it seems like we have athletes on the world cup with the Rosie Brennan. She was on my show just a week ago. And, um, you know, Andres Auckland, you mentioned where people are blooming, um, later or, or racing at a high level longer. And, um, and yet on the younger side, I think it's kind of, oh, we're very, very cautious and scared of it happening. Um, but it's all skiing to some degree too, but, uh, for risk that I don't, uh, or that I sound stupid, I will, I'll just be quiet and not say anything more. I think it's interesting that you give that perspective though. Um, I do have just a couple more questions here on, on like the future ski classics, maybe coming to North America. You mentioned, you know, it's always growing and, um, Dave Nielsen always has like innovation. So I kind of want to pick your brain and just ask a couple more, like, what do you think is um, set up for next year and in the future? And also what, what you would like to see maybe change to improve ski classic. So first, a quick word from our sponsors, the United States ski pole company, hundred percent made in the United States, hundred percent satisfaction guaranteed at the United States ski pole company. They're focused on quality, comfort and performance over price. If you expect the best, they're here to deliver. I use United States Ski Pole Company poles every day in my training, and I also use them in, well, pretty much, well, yeah, all of my races this year. So, took a few wins, had a second place. I know, I can't be perfect, but United States Ski Pole Company, it's awesome. And the best part about the United States Ski Pole Company, let's face it, you can have a custom ski pole made. You could you could even have a cedarskier.com custom graphics one made if you want. You can have one of those. You could be just like us, or you can put your face on a pole. I don't care. Andy doesn't care. Call him up. Okay, reach out to him. Reach out to me if you want to get United States Ski Pole Company ski poles. Uh, they could be yours today. 100% made in the United States. 100% awesome. So, United States Ski Pole Company, thank you for the support this year. And thank you for the great winter. And thank you for supporting us and supporting this podcast. 
and also Sport Hill. Sport Hill creating exceptional running, skiing, and outdoor clothing for elite athletes and Olympic champions, and you and me too. It's okay. We can wear Sport Hill as well. Each item Sport Hill makes engineered for unsurpassed comfort in all weather conditions and fit for performance. I've been using Sport Hill, well, for a long time, ever since I grew up in Moorhead, Minnesota. You know I needed Sport Hill, but, and yes, you can hear Novi. She's screaming because she wants Sport Hill too, don't you, Novi? That's right, and she wants a hug, too. Sport Hill, it's the one-stop shop place for you to be warm, dry, comfortable, and in yeah, just all-around happy, honestly, if you're working out outside. All right. Okay. Sweet. Back. You're back. All right. Timo Vertinen with us here on the Cedar Skier Podcast. And, yeah, you mentioned it's the ski classics. It's always growing. It's always innovating. What do you kind of see as a growth area for them that um that the ski classics Dave Nielsen's gonna try and do next year or in the future, um, or that you'd like to see kind of. Did you know anything on the inside, I guess? <laughs> uh it goes without saying that America is a big, big uh goal for uh and I think we should have I don't know about next year yet, but we should have races there. The problem is that uh one won't be enough. Uh we tried it in China, once that we had one race in China, not that many people showed up because of the travel and all that. It's yeah. too much to go that far uh, for just one race. And the kind of the same applies uh, uh, to America as well, that you need to have maybe a mini tour, a couple races, and where to find that. I mean, and not location, but the time. Where do you find the time to have a break? Uh, or not break, but where, where, do, you, where do we have weekend or weekends or certain type of time period that we could fit into this really tight calendar but everybody wants to go to to america and have a have a race there or races there uh then the next question is where in america then but uh, the, the 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 bigger question is is more the uh um, when more than where because the location you can find and uh, then have several maybe several races there to make it worthwhile you know for everyone to come over uh do you ha- need to have at least maybe maybe two races and maybe then like a some kind of a pre-race or a team race maybe have a like a mini like a mini tour there but uh so that's definitely something that uh we've been discussing and i think that'll be that'll be uh, the goal in the years to come and uh then the another question that a lot of people have had and still have is the uh, you know skating again that was tried as well you know Engadin uh there's certain skiers and certain people that are uh strongly uh you know for it I'm speaking in, in, in the behalf of that but uh, then the others are not uh for some reason for for obvious reasons because uh, ski classics as you mentioned way back that it has become uh, an arena for double polars. And that is kind of the way a lot of skiers would, would like it to be. Right. And, and you shouldn't mess with it. That's kind of what they say. And when you bring in skating, it changes the kind of this, the scene uh, and the face of the business, meaning that then you need to have, actually, Magna Dalin said it really well, that when I asked him about it, you know, the Team Rakde uh, director said it pretty uh uh, well, when he uh, noted that if we were to have skating, it would mean uh, more service people, more skis, 
more expensive and all that and uh, smaller teams wouldn't be able to then we need to have two types of skiers and so forth yeah. uh so according to him it wouldn't really make any sense to have because this uh this particular or this brand or this tour or the pro tour itself as they, as they call it has become uh pretty much just about double polling it's it's uh Right, as I said, it's an arena for double polers. But there are a couple races like Reistelope, where people still, the skiers still use cake wax, and that's right. fine. And there we can, and we can have even harder courses sometimes. And and uh, the good old Daikon striding uh, will remain in the picture, but I don't think the skating will come back. Okay, uh, that was tried once, and uh, but we'll see. I mean, it's uh, never say never. So it could could happen, but right now it doesn't look like there there will be uh, skating races in the calendar. So when you talk about coming to North America, that was something I definitely want to touch on. Like the the time and the schedule is definitely yeah that that makes sense that that would be a hurdle. I'm I'm curious then, do you guys or does Dave Nielsen like is he reaching out to race directors and kind of you know pitching? Hey, we want to come over there. Maybe can you move your event? to this weekend, you know, a month earlier or a month later or something like that. Are those conversations taking place with race directors then to kind of make that happen? Uh, I think so. Or is it still just in the idea? I think it's more like an idea, but of course, David is always talking to, you know, all the organizers and is in in, in close contact with uh, all the big races in the world. So I'm pretty sure he's talking, talking to them about it. It's, it's more, more about finding the, as I said, the time and uh, okay. make it kind of feasible to to everybody involved. That's kind of the question. So, but as I said, okay. we'll see. I mean, it's uh, hopefully it'll happen soon, though. And I, whenever I talk to him, you know, of course, I always kind of bring that up. But we should have a race in in America, of course, because of my background and all that. But still, but and he understands the value and the, and the importance of of if we, if we want to call this a. Uh, long distance world cup or world championships we need to have more countries than just european countries uh, yeah. and then and america would make sense and america or canada as well you know right it doesn't have to be north america per se just either canada or both could be both that would be nice right. to have races both in, in in the states and in america and then have a mid tour uh, utilizing both countries yeah that would be awesome um and i, I i'm curious like with you having D- double pulled a lot yourself at a high level watching it broadcasting it following it um that that technique has really you know changed and evolved and people are always kind of innovating as they are in really every technique obviously in skiing but what do you what do you see now as like the next frontier maybe with a a technical aspect an equipment aspect where you're like oh this is going to be the next thing or, or you know or is it Hey man, this is this is what they do. It's they're just they're hashing away. It's just double pull four hours and a sprint finish. Like, do, do you think someone's going to come along here, or do you see someone already coming along trying to innovate in certain little ways? Uh, you know, the minutia. Because I'm I'm sure if if they are, you've probably got your your eyes on it. <laughs> I don't think we'll see another technique per se, uh, but of course these techniques that we already have will. Uh, change and develop uh, in the years to come and double polling being the kind of dominant 
technique in long distance skiing of course that is evolving uh, it's evolving every every year it's and uh we're just kind of taking baby steps in terms of double polling so i don't think there will be another completely different you know uh type of technique that comes you know comes oh, yeah, out, yeah, that, out of the woodwork that's not what that's not what i mean i mean more yeah like within the double pole you know people really learning how to do things that are like um to climb hills more efficiently or faster, you know, or just reaching higher end top speeds, tr- testing out different length poles, those sorts of things that have happened in the past. Like, is there something else here on the floor? Yeah. I mean, of course, as I said, the double polling will, will uh, evolve and will, will improve the technique itself. And the skiers will improve the technique or change the technique and the equipment will change. We still, I said taking kind of baby steps in in terms yeah. of the skis and poles. I've been kind of amazed to see that that they're double poling poles. For example, we haven't had any. We have no manufacturer is, is actually developing any really uh, specific poles that are designed for double poling, meaning the baskets and the, you know the uh, the strips and all that, the handles. You know, they're still really far away what they could be. And uh, same with the skis. Okay, we're trying to, uh, we have these, what they call double pole, double poling skis, but still a lot of people are still uh, thinking that good old classic ski, <laughs> skis are better, better, at least for certain type of conditions, like really uh, uh, cold snow or uh, like wet snow. They tend to use longer skis, uh, more of the traditional uh, classic skis. So there's still ways to go there. Uh, same with boots and all that. So uh, and also the t- strength training and all that. I think uh, we talked about those young skiers kind of conquering, you know, the uh, the scene you know, and and coming up front. So I think you know they once they, we get more younger skiers like Amulbach, for example, uh, we get stronger skiers. Uh, that can double pole every hill. They they can do it now. I mean, but I mean, yeah. even even uh, stronger skiers and and the fastest skiers. So like in ten years from now, we'll see completely a different type of uh, uh, double pole poling tribe, so to speak. You know, it's a interesting. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, people that can do uh, things that we can't even imagine that it's possible. Because if you go ten, if you go just back ten years. Uh, nobody really believed that you could t- double pole certain type of courses. Mm-hmm. Like even Birkebeiner seemed to be impossible. Then right. Jürgen Auckland did it. So ten years from now, uh, who knows? Maybe even in a uh, United World Cup, you know, they double pole every single single race. Maybe not because faces, of course, uh, quite strictly against it and try <laughs> tries to uh, yeah. you know um, uh, manipulate the game uh, by having all these restrictions and diagonal zones and and all kinds of regulations and so forth but but we'll see but as i said you know double polling will definitely uh, uh change over the years and technique wise it has already changed when you look at the techniques from the 90s to early 2000 to right. uh, then 10 years ago and even now every single year uh something new is ca- coming in and, and and when you look at it just the technique itself and uh, and look at how the, the skiers, how they actually double pole compared to what they did five years ago. You can s- see a huge difference. Uh, and uh, and five years from now, 
when we look back, we can see, oh, this is how they ski now. I, I don't even know how they will ski in, you know, five years from now in terms of double poling uh, and the how uh, efficient they can be uh, technique-wise and how fast they can double pole and all that. It's, uh, as I said, we're still kind of taking the baby steps, you know, double poling as a technique of its own. It's been around. It's been a part of the classic yeah. technique, uh, but as a technique of its own, uh, it hasn't really been around for that long, but like the past 10 years. Right. Uh, yeah. You so. really, you really have to consider it almost as its own technique, not even as it's all, it is also a sub technique. Um, and, and I, the way I see it too, it's like equipment, athlete innovation, training, uh, programs, like those things kind of work in a cycle of as if, if for innovation, you know, so as if a brand comes along and does make something more specific with, a pole or a strap or something like that. And then an athlete can manipulate that and do something a little bit different. You know, that that's kind of, I feel like what we've seen with the, with the Clabo Clabo in, in classic sprinting, you know, his ability explosively to, to run up hills is partially, well, you wouldn't have been able to do that in the fifties just because the grooming wasn't firm enough or the forties, you know? And so there's all these little things that work together and um, yeah, it's, it's fascinating. Actually, last question there, you mentioned the straps and the poles. I was curious, like, what would you, uh, how would you design a pole specifically for double pulling? <laughs> Maybe you can uh, uh, help, help out the companies right here. Uh, that is a good question. I mean, I've tried all kinds of things, you know, and even over the years, even in the 80s, they had these uh, poles that had a, like a different type of handle. Uh, uh, but uh, uh, it's difficult to say. I mean, is there something that you really need to test? Because it may look kind of good on paper or it might make sense you know, when you kind of approach it from a kind of the physical or the physiological or even a, 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 a kind of a physics aspect of it. But then when you try it in, uh, in reality, it doesn't work for some reason. You know, it's a lot of scientists you know, come up with like really cool ideas that should work based on the, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, knowledge, but then in practice you, doesn't yeah in, in practice for some reason it's just uh it's just a lemon <laughs> it doesn't work yeah, you know for yeah. so it's uh, those are the kind of things that uh, i have certain type of ideas that what it could be but uh but i've tried all kinds of different poles with like a really like bent like a kind of bend out of shape a little bit and different type of poles uh, uh but all those different uh, models or uh, types that i've tried haven't really worked out that well yeah for some reason um but as as i said i think we will see uh we should see i mean as i actually haven't really seen it. i mean some people have with some companies or some individuals have tried some things but we haven't really seen a big kind of a revolution there in terms of like yeah. the whole manufacturing skis more so than and, and, and yeah. boots and all that but uh Poles tend to be kind of the same that they were 10 years ago, pretty much. I mean, they the material, of course, that changed a bit and they're lighter and they right, uh, stiff, right. stiffer and things like that. But in terms of the, like the baskets and and as you said, the straps and all that, that's this there's still room for innovation there, I think. So, uh, but what type it's hard for me to say. It's uh, yeah, we had uh, the ski sense, the power meters poles. We had, we have had. Now I'm blanking on his name, the CEO of it. We had Johan. We had him on our show twice, and he's talked of, um, about you know making power meters for poles, even and stuff like that. You know, it's like oh, that'll be 
there's all sorts of data. I think that the ski classics eventually like tour de France where you're watching the race and you're seeing heart rate and power all at the same time, you know, that I'm sure for you as broadcasters, that would be something that you'd love to have to analyze as well, right? As you're, as you're going through a three or four hour race, you can really see how people are working and handling different parts of the, of the course. And, and we, we might have that on the precipice, I think. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that, that's an interesting point as well. We didn't talk yeah. about that, you know, but of course the data, mm-hmm. uh, collecting data and, and, uh, one thing that's really made a uh, cycling so uh, effective, you know, uh, uh, is the, you know, the, their ability to, to measure everything, you know, yeah. the watts and the power, uh, which we don't have in skiing, and that should uh, we should have, or we should utilize uh, that aspect more more often. Or right, uh, which but it, it isn't as simple as it is in uh, you know uh, in cycling because if you when you cycle when you're on 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 your bike, I mean it's much easier to to mount all kinds of meters and you know uh, uh, measurements. Yeah, but yeah. Uh, when you're skiing. How, I mean, what do you want to carry? Do, yeah, exactly. Exactly. What do you want to carry? And what do you, yeah. how do you, I mean, what do you put on your skis? What kind of sensors do you put on skis or on your poles and things like that? It's, uh, it's possibly, possibly doable, but, uh, how to do it effectively and, uh, uh, and also in a way that they work well. So, right. Right. I don't, but yes, definitely. That is, that is the future too. You it's know, the, uh, the, the data and, 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 you know, of course, AI, uh, you know, stepping into the uh, the picture as well. Everything is powered by uh, artificial intelligence nowadays. <laughs> so of course, all that is coming in as well. So that that that'll change the face of the business as well. You know, yeah. we can have AI dictating the way of of the the future manufacturing and poles and skis and so all that kind of stuff as well. So, uh, uh, but we'll we'll see. It's. Uh, well, uh, I really appreciate the time you've given us, and this is going to be a, an awesome show, I know. Um, and now I'm thrilled for a year or two from now when you you and Honors Auckland might be roller skiing across our backyard here. You'll have to cross the Rockies somewhere, so we'll have to come find you. But maybe you'll have to maybe you'll have to come back on our show once that gets laid out, so people here in America can know where to come and cheer for you or hand you like a peanut butter sandwich on the side of the road. <laughs> well, of course. Yes. I will tell you, I'll keep you posted and hopefully yeah. that uh, that'll happen. You know, as I said, I'm working on it, but it's uh, still uh, many things that I, I need to do. Uh, and many people to talk to before, before that, uh, yeah. that'll uh, happen. But yeah, it is definitely, and it's a concrete and tangible uh, idea and, and, and a goal that, uh, that I have. And hopefully next summer or the, not this one, but the summer or that I need to do quite fast, fast, quite quickly. I can't just wait for, for too long. So yeah. Yeah. But yeah. Well, that's awesome. And uh, yeah, Timo, uh, Timo, thank you so much for uh, your time again. And yeah. Any other thoughts or, or things I should have asked that I didn't? Uh, probably not, but yeah. uh, I just, uh want to uh, remind everyone that you know skiing is a I know that it's not the biggest sport in your country but it's I know that there's so many good places to ski uh, even California is amazing that they're like there's like maybe 10 different cross-country ski resorts in that state alone yeah so uh, skiing is a, a beautiful and wonderful sport so uh, just uh, I urge everyone to go out there and and train and uh, reach your own goals and set up a goal uh, it doesn't have to be twenty-four hour <laughs> or yeah. you know endeavor, or, uh, uh, but just something that you feel that is uh, uh, perfect for for you as a goal, and then you just 
uh, go for it and and enjoy life. I think that's that. This is this is pretty much it's just that skiing is is it's a lifestyle for many of us. It's uh, that's how we kind of describe it. It's uh, uh, of course p- part of it is racing and and and, and uh, competing and having these hefty goals, but uh, it has to be. Uh, life it has to be life that you enjoy and then right. when you enjoy it it becomes lifestyle and and it's part of your life in part of your everyday life and and i wish that a lot of people could feel the same way it's uh and enjoy skiing it's true it's uh and speaking of that i i think it's probably about time for me to uh get on get the crust before it gets soft it's the weirdest part for me is like you get so used to waking up and like going skiing you know like that's kind of fits into your routine and then it's like all of a sudden out here anyway, probably for you too, if you're skiing into May, you wake up and you go to the little hundred meter slush pile and you're like, you know, it's just not worth it anymore. And you're, it's like, you're lost for a little bit, you know, like what, but part of my routine is gone. You just go right to roller skis, I guess. But I, I always have to like shift my brain and go, oh my gosh, it's like summer now. You know, I've been doing the same thing I was doing in October, December, January, all the cold months. And, and now it's the end of May. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah i hear you i know the feeling <laughs> yep yep so but anyway hey thank you so much and winning on this whole world now paying my dues to the dirt